referendum disinformation, New South Wales budget, Victorian homes, workers' rights, and good news about seaweed. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am your co-host, Ben Davison, and joining me on this 150th episode of The Week on Wednesday is the great, the glorious, the celebrated playwright of the Sydney Theatre Company's opening show of 2024, A Fool in Love, my wife and your friend, Van Badham. How are you, Van? Well, Ben, as you know, I haven't been well, which is why my voice is this very interesting tone. But but let's see how we go with it. At least I have a voice, which I didn't conspicuously a couple of days ago. Indeed. And of course, the it's been a week since we've managed to record anything, more than a week uh, since we've managed to record anything. Two weeks. We had a week off last week uh, because you were losing your voice and I had a stomach flu. You were in Sydney losing your voice and I was at home with stomach flu. It's been a pretty uh, rough week, but of course, as always, the week on Wednesday listeners gathered around, sent messages of love. It was so sweet. Everybody, we really appreciated it. I've been getting all these cute messages on Instagram asking me if I'm all right. And to be fair, everybody, I've been terribly sick. You have. But we're going to give this podcast a go and see if we can get through it without me having a coughing fit. <laughs> That's it. And we're... <laughs> You know, we like to do these things in one take, so let's see if we can make this happen. <laughs> of course, Van, uh, I mentioned in the intro your new show, uh, which is a Sydney Theatre Company production, big, the b- biggest, I think, uh, theatre company in Australia. Yeah, it is. Uh, your your second show, uh, you had one just before the pandemic, uh, so second show in recent years. It sold out the last show. It did. Banging uh, Denmark sold out nine months in advance. Fantastic. This next one is opening the season in 2024, Fall in Love, a farcical comedy. Well, Ben has actually seen a rehearsed reading of A Fool in Love. It's an adaptation of a 16th century Spanish play by my hero, Lope de Vega. Uh, William Shakespeare is the English Lope de Vega, and it's about class and matrimony and romance and wealth, and it's like the original text is absolutely wonderful, but it's tricky. I mean, it's a a tricky play 500 years Mm. after the fact, so I've had a crack at it, and it's got an amazing cast. Meg Wilding, who you'd know from Gold Diggers, who was also in Banging Denmark, who was in my production of Animal Farm in Western Australia. She's in it. She's glorious. Melissa Caraman, who was in Hubris and Humiliation at the Sydney Theatre Company earlier this year, very, very celebrated. And Contessa Trefoni, who is hilarious, who was in the rehearsed reading of A Fall in Love, the sort of leading trio. And they're so funny and I'm really, really excited. It should be. I, I, as you say, I've seen a rehearsed reading and I know there's always more polishing that happens after that. Yeah, and they wear costumes and the lights go on and off. It's very exciting. <laughs> but uh, it is a very funny, it is a very, very funny play. So check that out. Tickets to the general public go on sale from the 7th of December. Subscriber tickets. Uh, already on sale. Already on sale. So if you're already a subscriber to the Sydney Theatre Company, get on it. If you're not already a subscriber, check out when you can get on it. And, of course, if... Uh, if the only shows you want to see are Van Batam shows, <laughs> the 7th of December is your day to log on and get those tickets. As I say, as we say, uh, Banging Denmark's on out nine months ahead of time. So getting quick, 
makes the ideal Christmas present, I've been told. It does. It does. It's a great date night show too. There you go. Look, Van, talking about important dates, uh, we do have to talk about the referendum. Yeah, we do. October 14th, the referendum uh, on whether or not to recognise First Nations Australians in our constitution, uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders as the First Nations Australians in our constitution, and whether or not to uh, establish a an advisory body called The Voice uh, that the government can legislate uh, to make representations to make representations uh, on issues that impact Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people will be up for a vote. Interestingly, we've seen some some pretty shocking polling data over the last few months that suggests significant changes in people's perceptions of this from, say, November, December last year to where we are now. And at the same time, Van, we've noticed quite the ramp up of disinformation and misinformation. Well, the disinformation and misinformation about the voice has been seeded for a long time. And I want to talk about it because obviously I learned about disinformation campaigning when I was undercover and researching my book, Q and On and On, and about how uh, sort of ideologically aligned extremist groups are manipulated by campaigns as propaganda agents, which sounds like an incredible thing to talk about in Australia. But unfortunately, these kinds of information campaigning, which were perfected by the Russians, the Russians, Mm. anybody following the war in Ukraine would be seeing reporting around the kind of propaganda lies that get pushed out through social media channels by the Russian government and there there are models for doing this and, and reasons why they do it. That form of campaigning that was pioneered by the Russians, we saw turn up in support of Donald Trump's election in 2016. We saw it turn up in support of Brexit and getting Britain to leave the EU, the most disastrous decision in British history, as we all know. But we've also seen it play out in countries like Estonia and in the Netherlands and in Scandinavia and in Poland, where various nefarious political actors use disinformation campaigning on the internet Mm. in order to create social division, in order to normalise extremist positions, in order to get elected to various things or to sink policy proposals. And then we saw it here, of course, with the 2019 election too. We did. And then during COVID as well, the attempts yep. to undermine government responses to COVID. Uh, this is this is not new in Australia. In fact, uh, the Albanese Labor government is moving forward with a proposal to try and um, bring in more regulation around uh, platforms that give disinformation or misinformation avenues to to spread disinformation and misinformation. And it's it's actually a matter of urgency. Yeah. Because what we know is disinformation is bringing extremists out of hiding and it's giving them the com- the confidence to enact greater and greater acts of public disruption and in some cases violence. Right? Because disinformation allows people to live in paranoid parallel realities where they believe things about society which are not true, which they then use to justify all kinds of horrible things to themselves, which is what my book Q&A and on is about. But I want to talk specifically about the voice referendum and what we're seeing. Mm-hmm. The proposal in front of the Australian people is actually really simple, right? One, it's to recognise that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people were the First Nations of this country and were here first. 
right, mm-hmm. and to get rid of this misconception that Australia only began when white people turned up because that's not true. Mm-hmm. Number two is the the question to go into the, the, the question is about putting into the Constitution that there will be a voice to Parliament, an agency, to make representations to the democratically elected government on behalf of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Yep. And that's all the question is. Right? It doesn't determine, you know, the specific structure of what that agency will be or how many people will be involved or how much money it will have because that's not what the Constitution is for. The Constitution is out, is about outlining functions of government and responsibilities of mm, government mm. and it's up to the parliament to legislate how those concepts will work in practice so they can come under democratic control. And can I give a classic example? The classic example is that the office of prime minister is not mentioned in the in the constitution. No. It is a it is a legislative regulatory and conventional uh, uh, thing that exists because the parliament has recognized that having a prime minister is in the best interests of running the government. It, it, the Constitution makes no mention of it, makes no mention of any of the portfolios that any of the ministers have. It's a very values-based document. In fact, it's very much about relations between the states and the powers that the Commonwealth will have to exercise. And that's what this referendum is doing, is it's saying the Commonwealth will have these powers. It's not saying... Anything more or less than that? No, and and that's the key point. The Constitution is about is about saying what are the powers of the federal government as opposed to the state governments. We are a federation of states, mm. right? And I realise that you know constitutional regulations and law are in everyone's bag, but given the fact that we are having a referendum, the Constitution can only be changed by vote of the people, mm. not by decisions of the Parliament. So what happened with the Uluru Statement process was over a period of years and thousands and thousands of participants and consultations and reaching out to community was there was a representative gathering in Uluru Mm. of people coming from all kinds of different Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities who got together and went, right, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people there is a gap in our life expectancy, in our wealth, in our educational opportunity. We are overrepresented in terms of incarceration and underrepresented in terms of university graduates per head of population. Mm-hmm. Like there are systemic issues. And I think we all know why there were systemic issues because Aboriginal people were driven from their land, they were dispossessed, they did not have property rights. They were at the time that my family and your family emigrated to this country and had terrible jobs. I mean, Mm. when my family came out here, they were itinerant shearers or, or, you know, worked in factories and in in pre-unionised conditions where things were pretty ropey, which is why I'm from a union family because Mm. that's what changed outcomes. It meant that the jobs they had allowed them to accrue wealth. Mm. When my grandfather came back from the Second World War, in return for his service, he got a low-interest loan on a house package provided by the government and that house that my working-class family was able to buy a little asbestos house in San Susi gave us inherited wealth, mm. all right, which gave us a place to live and educated us, and that gave us three generations went from 
like, you know, my grandfather was a, a retail assistant before he went to war. To me, four university degrees, middle-class life, you know, this is, these are the transitions that were possible. Those things were not possible for Aboriginal people. Mm. Abor- uh, Aboriginal veterans after the Second World War were not given those packages because no. of systemic discrimination. At the time, my family was getting a house. Those families weren't. And in fact, as late as the 70s, I believe, there were still... In some parts of this country, you required written permission from a minister to leave the the mission. You know that that in fact, even having a job in mainstream Australia was not always possible for Aboriginal people. No, and let's not forget we had to have a re- referendum and change the constitution so Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people could vote, and that only happened in 1967. Yeah. Okay, that's only seven years before I was born. Someone like Linda Burney, who's now the Minister for Indigenous Affairs in the Albanese government, when Linda was born, her family had no voting rights. And we're not just talking about voting rights. Aboriginal families were not allowed to open bank accounts. Yeah. All right? That was prohibited. And you had children being stolen from their families by the government. Mm. So generations of trauma, families that never reconnected. We have Aboriginal friends who do not know their family's history because they were stolen. Mm. Can you imagine everything about you being erased by an act of government, which creates generations of governmental mistrust? Like all of that is the reason why this group of people, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, live in in systemic comparative disadvantage to every other Australian on every metric, Mm. all right, it is quite simple to understand why. I just want people to think if your child was stolen, Mm. if a van came in in Mm. the morning and took your child from you, would you just dust your hands and go, oh, well, better get along with it then, better just increase my income share even though I can't open a bank account, even though I can't, you know, get a job at this place, even though I don't have access to training or education. And these these were reality for people. Mm. This creates generational problems and we are trying to solve them, you know, and the voice people have criticisms of it. Will it solve problems? Really, you know, it is a start. It is a start in giving Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people from the two hundred and fifty different language groups. Remember, there are mm. more. There are more cultural communities amongst Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australia than there are countries in Europe. Yeah. Okay, like it is. This is a vast cultural differences between people. We're not talking about a homogenous mass. Mm. And if we want to look at mechanisms for improving outcomes, it's sensible to have a process where Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people can assess their own needs and make representations to government so there is no waste. You know, one of the campaigners for The Voice tells this very illustrative story, which is about a community um, a remote Indigenous community where the kids really love playing football. Mm. And so they applied for a grant for football facilities, mm. which is very normal. That's what happens in our town. Yep. You know, if you've heard the term sports rorts, you know that hundreds of communities, not necessarily Aboriginal people. Mm. And like, not all rorts, by the And way. obviously <laughs> not all rorts. But, you know, funding those yeah. kind of development projects is what government does. For some reason, government decided that this community, even though the kids play football, didn't need football, they needed a bicycle track. There was only one problem. So the government put in a bicycle track. None of the kids have bicycles, right? None of those families could afford 
mm. bicycles. So then a number of bicycles were supplied so kids would be able to use this bicycle track, which they had not asked for but for some reason had been built. And then somebody decided that the kids couldn't be trusted to return the bicycles if they were given them, so they were locked up in a shed. Okay, so what's the solution here? Like, And, and you hear stories like this all the time. Mm. Communities putting in reasonable requests for development and support like any other community, mm. but because they're Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander, because they may be from a different language group, there are things going very wrong in terms of government intuiting what people want or need which they don't want or need, and that is waste and that is a problem. Mm. So the whole point of the Uluru Statement, which is only one page, was to say we have come together, thousands of people, all these consultative committees and representations mm. and notes and meetings and the rest, and we have reached a consensus position, a unified position that there should be a voice where there will be representatives of our communities to make representations to government. So rather than just guessing what we need or deciding what we need with no consultation, there will be a mechanism mm. for us to talk about our needs and you respond to them. So let's talk about some of the misinformation around this because there has been an explosion in misinformation and and some of it quite frankly is high level misinformation from from the likes of Warren Mundine and Jacinta Price just things that are clearly wrong or contradictory or projections there's that kind of stuff which I think a lot of people um, I think a lot of reasonable rational people do try and call out or do see as being what it is but then there's the stuff that goes on on the internet and 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 what you talked about before around the empowering of far right organizations and using this as an opportunity to really erode faith in our democracy like we're seeing even on the week on Wednesday Facebook page, let alone pages like yours or like our, our comrades um, Will Strack or Sally McManus from the union movement, uh, who are obviously unions are very supportive of the voice. The union movement has walked alongside uh, our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander um, brothers and sisters for generations now. I'm wearing my um, uh, unions for yes hoodie. And you look dashing in it. You can go to australianunions.org.au slash wow to join your union. You can also join the First Nations Workers Alliance as a as a supporter, uh, and of course you can check out yes23.com.au to get um, merchandise like these great hoodies. Um, but the level of just um, just clearly wrong things that people are posting, and not just you know one or two sort of random you know central Queensland people. We're talking about coordinated. Not all central Queenslanders, Ben. No, no, not all central Queenslanders. But you know, we're not talking about the good constituents of David Littleproud here. We're talking about um, hundreds, if not thousands, of coordinated accounts. Yeah. Not not even people, but accounts that are attacking posts that try and do what you've just done, which is actually explain what it is, talk about why it's needed, and then they put forward these ideas that somehow or another this thing is all a big cover-up for some kind of UN takeover yeah. or some other kind of random conspiracy theory. Yeah, so our good comrade Will Strack, who's mm. a proud, strong union woman, 
she is now a TikTok celebrity mm. and she makes fantastic videos on TikTok that explain social and industrial and political issues. They're great. They usually go for 100 seconds. She's a brilliant communicator. And she did a video in particular which is on my Facebook page mm. which is about why do we need to put the voice in the Constitution. Well, we want to put the voice in the Constitution because, as she explains in her video, there have been repre- like representative Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander consultative advisors boards in the past, Mm. but every time the government changed from Liberal to Labor, the new government would get rid of them, Mm. right? So they would go. So institutional knowledge and relationships because a new government comes in with a new party political agenda Mm. and they wipe the board. And her point is that the Uluru Statement asked for it to go into the Constitution because then you can balance the need of a voice to exist and the need for there to be a representation to Parliament from 250 different language groups mm. representing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander committees um, in a way that is composed in order to be effective, uh, but it can't be just smashed and gotten rid of. It can be changed and reconstituted. Yep. It can be reorganised. It can have its budget changed by the democratic will of the broader Australian people expressed through the parliament, but it can't just be erased, yep. you know, and fall apart. And that's what the Aboriginal and Torres mm. Strait Islander community is asked for. What... Um, the reaction to that video where she explained all of this was I went to bed after posting it and woke up to about a 1,000 abusive messages the next day. Yeah. And this all happened over Friday night. So enormous numbers of of accounts hit my Facebook page at 3 o'clock in the morning, which quite honestly, 3 o'clock in the morning on a Friday to Saturday is a time where Australians are either asleep or uh, very drunk or having a very, very good time that does not involve Facebook. And I noticed some things about the stuff that was being posted. One, that there was heaps of American spelling. That was interesting. What a coincidence. Um, There were men calling themselves Shezza in their accounts, which is interesting because I've met a lot of Shezzas in my time in Australia. Never men. Um, But also there were various talking points that were being regurgitated that I was very familiar with because I wrote a book about QAnon. So I saw the QAnon slogans, do your own research and the storm is coming. I also saw a lot of symbols and slogans associated with the militia movement in America, references Mm -hmm. to the New World Order and attacks on the UN. Right, this idea—it's an old school conspiracy yeah. theory that the UN is flying in black helicopters in the middle of the night to take over our countries, which hasn't happened. And you know, there have been heaps of wars since the 1980s. Like, there are heaps of places where, if you had black helicopters to spare, there are countries you could have taken over really easily without getting Australians to vote in a referendum about an agency representing like 250 different language groups of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. The UN is not interested in a land grab. Frankly, it's got bigger problems trying to stop wars between sovereign nations. Um, Joe Biden spoke to the UN today Mm. about what the Russians are doing in Ukraine. Um, But also, so that was a very familiar element. Um, There are also a lot of language associated with the sovereign citizens movement Mm -hmm. who talk about how Australia is not really a country, it's a corporation. And it's this kind of weird pseudo-legalese, which, by the way, you cannot defend yourself within court. If you declare yourself a sovereign citizen in court and say your laws don't apply to me because you're really a corporation, you will still go to jail. I just want to make that very clear, as plenty of people have. Yeah. And these kind of slogans 
um, are, are so familiar to me. They're not necessarily familiar to other Australians who've done the level of research I have into these yeah. niche communities of cookers, um, but also a lot of anti-vax stuff. So I got stuff saying, yeah, of course you support the voice. I bet you've been vaccinated. And it's like, well, yeah, oh, I mean, I have. Yeah. I have absolutely been vaccinated five times. And look, I'm still here. Um, and so to understand the pattern of what's going on is that obviously these groups mm-hmm. of people who are already susceptible to conspiracy theories are being whipped up into a frenzy about the voice. Someone is supplying them with very cleverly, cleverly crafted messages mm-hmm. trying to fuse um, opposition to the voice with whatever their boutique paranoia is. Hence the voices are front for the UN, for the UN people. Hence the the voices are front for tagging over land, kind of QAnon-y mm. kind of thing. And these groups who exist on the internet, we know where their communities are. They're on Telegram. I've been in their communities hiding for years. I'm getting whipped up into a frenzy. And the reason why they're being kicked off mm. is quite strategic and it's very, very clever. Someone like me, who's, you know, an ally of this cause, has a moderate um, platform. Mm-hmm. Um, I get attacked, the idea being that I will see a thousand people also saying I'm fat and have bad teeth and the typical blah, 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 you're a communist, don't you know what the problem is, blah, blah, blah. Um, the idea is that I'm supposed to go, this is too hard, this is awful, I don't want to spend half my day deleting all these mm. messages, I'm really tired. I'm just not going to post about this issue anymore. Mm. So it's a way of taking influences out of the political conversation through overwhelming. It's also a way, all this overwhelming, because they also attack my followers mm-hmm. who comment, is to try and start spurious arguments with yes campaigners. And a lot of people obviously take the bait because they get upset, which they should, because yep. it's awful, especially the racist stuff. And they're targeting white supremacist groups as well, obviously. Yeah. Um, is that if you argue with these people, it the algorithm then rewards those arguments with more attention. So the craziest stuff that you see gets promoted to the top of a feed mm-hmm. and the whole discussion around a post which is based, in fact, about the history of the voice, all, the, all these things, becomes a crazy discussion about the UN, right? What that does is it tires out the base, like people mm-hmm. who are my commenters who are pro-yes, go, why am I doing this? I've been in this argument with this lunatic for 17 hours. These people may not be aware that they're dealing with a QAnon or some random in America who's obsessed with guns or whoever these people are who are turning up. A lot of locked profiles, very mm. difficult to trace exactly who they are, mm. although there are common threads, and it's about tying out activists. But it's also about communicating to time-poor people who aren't engaging around the voice issue, and we know of Australians have given no thought to the referendum whatsoever. They've got families, they've got cost of living issues, they've got stuff going on, and they're like... And we're going to talk about some of the And we're going to talk about those things. But if they see the voice being some crazy discussion they can't even follow about the UN and black helicopters Mm. and, you know, obscure organisations nobody's heard about and Bill Gates and vaccines and no, 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 Mm. it turns them off and goes, too hard, I don't want to think about it, I don't want to look it up. I don't want to research it. I don't want to know. Hence the public face of the No campaign, which is running under which slogan, Ben? If you don't know, vote no. If you don't know, vote no. While online there is a very busy disinformation campaign that's there to ensure that people who haven't made their minds up don't know what the issues are because every time someone like me or Will or Sally or any other influencer speaks and these cookers Mm. and loons turn up, it becomes very difficult 
to work out what's going on. And people who are doing campaigning online also get dragged into these crazy arguments. And it's really very frightening because, yes, campaigners are generally coming from a place of reason and empathy Mm. and don't really understand how to engage with people who are not empathetic because, you know, they're white supremacists, which is, I mean, just very difficult to imagine if you are not one and also not using reason. And in my book about QAnon, I talk about how hard it is to deal with a QAnon person because people who believe in like lizards and child trafficking networks run by Hillary Clinton from pizza restaurants Mm. have not reasoned themselves into their beliefs. You know, they've chosen them because they speak to paranoias that they want to have justified, that the world is out to get them, that things are unfair, that there are secret conspiracies, that the black helicopters are coming in the middle of the night and that's why their wife left them or they didn't get custody of their children or their business failed and all these things. And you do recognise a lot of Mm. patterns of these people, but the technique is also known as swarming. So you mobilise you know, this base of extremists who Mm. aren't representative and it sort of gives cover to other people to start engaging and going, oh, you know, now I feel comfortable about being a bit racist in public, now I feel comfortable about being a bit of a loon. So even though it starts off inorganically and is set up as like this extremist exercise, it picks up and moves the window towards sort of far-right positions, which is why these campaigns like the voice campaign, attract the likes of Steve Bannon. And some disinformation scholars think it's very similar to a lot of Steve Bannon-supported campaigns, like Mm -hmm. the Trump campaign, like all this crazy business that went on in the Netherlands around various issues, that there is an organised global far-right movement who look at cultural war issues as a means of recruiting, that if you can just drag the window and get people who are, you know, distressed, mm. vulnerable, confused to go, yeah, maybe it is the UN, that that's quite politically useful to you. And that is happening in this debate. Now, Australians obviously have every right to go, well, this is a constitutional change, what's it going to mean? There is very true information out there, but there are prominent people who are pushing disinformation narrative. One of them I want to identify is Peter Credlin, mm. all right? So Peter Credlin on Sky, which now gets forced broadcasts into regional communities because of a deal done by Scott Morrison and Rupert Murdoch, mm-hmm. Peter Credlin knows perfectly well she is not an unintelligent or uninformed woman that the Uluru Statement is one page. It is one page mm. because it was a consensus position that represented everyone there. She made an announcement on her Sky News show that it was actually a 26-page document that had all of these subclauses and she'd obtained it through freedom of information. And I see a lot. This is one of the particular strains of disinformation that's going on. Mm-hmm. Now, what she is saying, you know, this supposition that there's this sort of secret document, secret agenda, it's 26 pages, is not true. The 26 pages come from community notes that were part of documents around the consultative process. So all the things that are being criticised, like who does this represent, who did you really speak to, who is the secret agenda, who are going to run the voice, blah, blah, blah. So if you speak to thousands and thousands of people about what they want, 
It's sort of like a Facebook comment section and you will get all kinds of suggestions like how are you going to solve, you know, mm. how are you going to solve entrenched Indigenous poverty? Well, we'll give everybody a cat or whatever, like yeah. whatever, you know, suggestions people come up with. Ben has done a lot of focus groups and knows that, you know, there's no, there's actually no limit on how crazy yeah. suggestions can be in certain situations. But those pages of notes that were part of a consultation that are not part of the Uluru statement, I've had hundreds of people go, yeah, what about the 26-page document? And it said this and it said that. No context, no nothing. And it's very difficult to argue with because you don't want to get dragged into the mud. Mm. You've just got to block, ban, delay. But I want people who believe in yes, who want this country to go forward, who want Australians to stop spending money on building bicycle tracks when people want football stadiums and paying for bikes that go into a shed that no one can use, right, I want Australians who are reasonable and rational and want a way forward for this country to move together as an integrated and united place Mm. to be very aware that there is a structured disinformation campaign going online to demobilise you, to discourage you, to make you feel despair and also to mask the numbers of people who actually believe this because there are studies. If you see a 1,000 people going, oh, you know, Vanessa Adams a communist on a page where only one person has gone, oh, actually she does quite a reasonable democratic socialist uh, podcast with her husband where they talk through all their beliefs, maybe you should listen to it. If a, a newbie comes and sees that and sees a 1,000 people not knowing who they are, what they stand mm. for, where they come from, they'll probably believe whatever they're told. So it is really important that if you support the voice, speak over the noise, be loud and proud in your support, put your poster in your window, wear your T-shirt, mm-hmm. make your comments particularly online, share good content that speaks to the facts that are on record and block, ban, delete the people pushing disinformation. And if you have a friend or a family member who you see pushing this kind of stuff, I know it can be really alarming. If people are susceptible to disinformation, it actually means they're in a state of psychological distress about something else, mm-hmm. right? Something is going on in their lives that's making them latch onto, you know, black helicopters and Bill Gates and, you know, robot insects yeah. in vaccines and all of the other crazy things. I really wish I had not lived to say, right, which I've seen, give them a call, maybe have a cup of coffee with them. Don't talk to them about the voice. Don't talk to them about politics. Don't talk to them about their new beliefs. Just ask them what's going on in their life, and that in itself is an amazing political thing to do. And obviously, if you do want to support The Voice, join one of the volunteer groups that are being run through the Yes 23 campaign And because you will not see any of this crazy stuff in person. Yeah. You know, you and I have been handing out at markets and train stations and you might get one or two no voters and that's fine. And I did have an extremely strange woman say all kinds of things to me that were quite curious, but it was absolutely nothing on the scale of what you'll see online. So it's quite a distortion field about how people are approaching the campaign. Yeah, absolutely, Van. Look, I think that's really useful for us to – obviously, we're going to talk about this now pretty much every episode up until – and the day after the referendum as well because it is such an important topic and I think just – We've had lots of people contact us about the disinformation that they've seen or been exposed to and and wondering what to do. Hopefully, this discussion helps you to understand what it's about, what you can do, how you can tackle the situation when you're confronted by it, uh, and know that it's not up to you to convince somebody who's spreading disinformation to stop doing that but how you can actually engage with real people who might be in your life who have become 
susceptible to it or victims of it in a way that that moves them uh, to a place where they're engaging with reality again, because we know that's the that's the key to this. Van, I, I do want us to. Move I just on. just one more thing. There is nothing wrong with with blocking someone who you love yeah. if they're pushing disinformation on your social media channels. You can always unblock them when the campaign's over. And in fact, it might be one of the best things you can do for your relationship with that person to just snooze that relationship on social media until you're ready to talk to them again. That's okay. You will not be judged as a bad person for doing that. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I want to move on uh, because there's a couple of other things. You you mentioned uh, in that discussion that one in three Australians has not really even turned their mind to the referendum at this point, uh, partly because the cost of living issues that are going on, the economic pressures that people are under, of course, all of this is fallout of 40 years of neoliberalism compounded by the GFC, compounded again by COVID and the greed and profiteering of major corporations both here and overseas. So we now have a situation in this country where we have wall-to-wall Labor state and territory governments uh, and a Labor Commonwealth government. And for the first time in over a decade, a New South Wales government led by Labor has handed down a Labor budget. Now, the budget has been hailed by some. Unions New South Wales has uh, called it a landmark. Uh, it, It gets rid of the old wages cap that was dragging down wages, not just in the public sector, but study after study, research paper after research paper shows that capping public sector wages is a drag on wages right across the economy. Which is why neoliberals always do it. Right. They always, always want to cut the public service, outsource it, cap wages, because they know it has flow and effects into the rest of the economy and makes wage increases less likely for private sector workers. That's why they do it. Yeah, absolutely. So there is a significant investment in the public sector in the New South Wales state budget, the first budget of the Labor government, a $3.6 billion fund to support pay growth for nurses, paramedics and teachers. Uh, It's a a fund that will uh, lift the salaries of all those workers, in some cases for some entry-level teachers by as much as 12%. Uh, These are huge wins for working people. Uh, Regional New South Wales will get 500 extra paramedics. Uh, There'll be study subsidies for 12,000 students in the healthcare sector. Uh, Nearly 1,200 nurses and midwives will be made permanent. It boggles my mind, but New South Wales under a decade of Liberal coalition misrule, had managed to move thousands of healthcare workers, thousands of teachers onto casualised contracts. Of course, Labor is giving those workers some certainty and some control over their lives. We know the benefits that has for health, um, economic participation, community participation. There will be scholarships for people studying healthcare, extra nurses, extra medical students, extra midwifery programs. Uh, of course, there is also uh, a big issue in, in New South Wales, Van, as you and I know, is around housing. Oh, it's a nightmare. I mean, it is completely a nightmare. <coughs> so 
One of the headline things here is that there'll be 5,000 homes built through the state-owned Landcom uh, organisation by 2040, and 1,500 of those will be affordable homes, while the rest will be left for the private market. Now, Treasurer Daniel Mookie, uh, old colleague of mine from back in the union days, um, said that this was a small figure given the scale of the issue and with rising rents and skyrocketing mortgages, but promised it was just the start. The government expects to build 3,000 of these homes by 2031. Landcom, this is the state-owned uh, uh, organisation, will receive $60 million for a publicly-owned build-to-rent project in regional New South Wales as well and, of course, look to do more. One of the points I want to make here, because we're going to talk about the Victorian government announcement that came out today. So this budget came out yesterday. We will talk about the Victorian housing um, announcement today. And I want to compare and contrast them, not in a negative way, but you know, in the sense that what the last two days have shown is why it's important to have long-term Labor governments because this Labor government in New South Wales um, has inherited a budget that is in massive structural deficit uh, that had to find $13 billion to redirect into essential services. Uh, it has had uh, significant budget overruns inherited from a decade of liberal mismanagement. Many of its uh, key infrastructure projects have been privatised. It's had to find ways to offset some of those costs for people. So things like tolls, New South Wales is the capital, one of the world capitals for toll roads. Labor has put in place some relief for families uh, and small businesses on tolls. when you're inheriting that, there are limitations. You know, you've got to get the budget to a point where it's sustainable, it's workable, it's working, starting to work for working people as opposed to just delivering for the top end of town. We've had nearly a decade, by contrast, we've had nearly a decade of Labor in Victoria where we have a government that has got long-term commitments, been able to turn around I mean, I only had four years, don't forget, of Liberal government in between Labor governments turn around that four years of damage relatively quickly and set out a pathway to keep improving. Now, not everything can happen at once. We all wish it could. If there was a magic wand that we could wave to magically build tens of thousands of homes and fix every hospital and make every school a palace, we would do it. And Ben and I are more than happy to have the discussion with you about why printing more money is not actually the answer, but we're not going to get into that now. But people come up with this whole, oh, well, why can't you just build two billion more homes? I mean, you're the government. And it's like, well, yeah, I mean, we need the tradies, we need the land, we need the money, we need to know where they need to go. Like this is, and especially when you're coming into government, there are 10 years of decisions that have taken place and administrations and allocations from the previous government, from the Liberals, that have put you in the situation that you're in. We should be really clear here as well. There is a range of things that have to happen. You know, it's not just one thing. So in New South Wales, they're putting in place subsidies of $500 per child in fee relief for three-year-olds in long daycare. There's $1.8 billion in renewable energy infrastructure, $3.5 billion in school builds, uh, upgrades for the Sydney's West and Southwest, and $1.4 billion for regional schools. On top of all the other things, Things. Governments don't get the option or luxury, I should say, of focusing on just one thing. 
liberal governments will often just focus on one thing. That is, how do you cut the public sector as much as possible and how do you cut taxes? And effectively, their focus is just on cutting things out. Labor is by tradition, by values, by policy, a, a party that builds. And when you're building many, many things and trying to service many, many different communities with many different needs, that takes time. The New South Wales Labor government was elected in March. It's September. You know, we're talking about six months of them being feet under the desk. First budget it's been widely considered to be a good budget, a good start. And let's be clear here too, most budgets will should, good budgets, good Keynesian budgets, should actually leave everybody a little bit dissatisfied. Because if anybody's getting everything they want in this budget... It means somebody's getting nothing. If you get everything, it means someone gets nothing. But if you get a bit, it means somebody else gets a bit. And that's actually how you enable long-term planning, growth and policy development to get momentum. I mean, this is another thing that people don't understand. I mean, and the voice referendum, frankly, should illustrate this for people, is that, you know, we socialise differently. We're exposed to different political ideas. We have different um, policy priorities as individuals, as neighbours, as families, as Mm. communities, right? Getting everybody on board, Building a majority is actually an exhausting Mm. prospect. And this is why, like, I'm fundamentally uninterested in minor parties and people, oh, we should just start a new minor party. It's like minor parties, by definition, are not trying to appeal to the majority. And therefore, how do you get lasting you know, conceptual mm. grokking of what needs to happen and get everybody on board. Medicare is a really good example. Mm. People on the centre-right, people who voted Liberal their whole lives, go bananas if you talk about axing Medicare. You know, they go bananas yeah. if you say, oh, TAFE should be completely privatised because those values have won a majority support that people don't want to get rid of. Yeah, absolutely. And look, a couple of points in this budget that I want to make as well. There, there will be an increase in coal royalties for the first time in 15 years, and that's an extra $2.7 billion into the public coffers, something Liberals refused to do. Uh, despite the damage that coal causes, despite, we're not going to charge yeah. them any money for it. Fantastic. Um, which, is, which is good because, you know, those investments in uh, renewable energy can be funded from in- – Improving our tax take from fossil fuels. Wow, that actually be. sounds like a transition, Ben. That yeah. sounds like what transition actually means. And there is there is money in the budget around transition and making sure that there is some fairness to it. The other point I want to make out about making choices, there's been some criticism of um, Daniel Mookie and Chris Minns in the Labor government because they have um, decided to cut the stamp duty exemption and the $3,000 rebate for electric vehicle purchases from January 1. At the same time, they've put that money into uh, extra charging capacity in commuter car parks and apartment buildings and other places where people don't have access to home charging. So while I understand why people would be disappointed about not getting a rebate on an electric vehicle, the reality is that the electric vehicle infrastructure, particularly in New South Wales, is well underdone, very undercooked. We've talked about electric vehicle infrastructure in Queensland being built, in WA, where I think they're building the world's largest electrical superhighway. Um, if I've got that wrong, write in and tell me, but we've seen things around that before. 
in New South Wales, there's very little infrastructure for electric vehicles. What the government is saying is we know that the vast majority of people who are buying these vehicles at the moment um, have the capacity to get them. The costs of electric vehicles are coming down anyway, but what's not in place is the infrastructure. So Labor believes in New South Wales it is a better use of public money to build the infrastructure to facilitate more people going, actually, I live in an apartment. I don't have a way to charge my car at home. I can now get an entry-level vehicle. I can afford the vehicle, but I've got nowhere to charge it, so I'm not going to buy it. I'm going to buy an entry-level diesel or petrol vehicle instead. They've made that assessment. Now, people can say, well, I disagree with that. I think that's wrong, whatever. But it's good to see some public rationale and and decision-making about what is a priority. So, I mean, I think it's a good budget. I think it's the first budget that Labor has done in a decade. You know, I take Mookie at his word when he says there's more to be done. Um, And if you look at the history of Labor governments around this country, you only need to look south of the Murray to see that the longer Labor is in, the more it is able to do, the broader its ambition is able to be. And it's very funny. I find it really funny, just coming back to the voice for a moment, Van, that the Americanized culture war uh, is effective when there is a culture war. And in some ways, referendums around the Constitution are a comment on our culture. Because they're about concepts. Yeah. You know, they're about the concepts that that will inform the way that we govern. Yeah. So it is a it is a it is a ripe field for culture war. And it's difficult, right? Because in Australia, because we have compulsory voting, because we have very tangible, very material needs, and we're a large country with a small population relative to size, we actually focus our politics very much on the material. And what is in the best interests of our family, our community, ourselves, becomes quite dominant narratives in election campaigns, whether that's around tax policy or whether that's around workers' rights or whether it's job opportunities. All those things become come to the fore. So people kind of say, oh, well, you know, if the voice goes down, it'll it'll um, destroy Labor. Interestingly, the polling doesn't suggest that. Not at all. I mean, there's an extraordinary poll out this week saying that the Liberal Party in Victoria has actually lost ground. Yeah, and and I want to move on to that because, you know, certainly I want to give some credit before I move on to that. I want to give some credit to the union movement in New South Wales, not just for getting a Labor government into power, but holding that government to account when it comes to its promises on teachers, on healthcare and wages, uh, and also reining in the outsourcing of the public sector, almost half a billion, well, just over half a billion dollars of uh, outsourcing is being reined back in. These are big, big wins for working people that the union movement there has won. If you are not in a union in New South Wales, you should be joining. You can go to that same link we always talk about, australianunions.org.au slash wow, wherever you are in the country, and join your union because in New South Wales, that union movement is getting things done, just like the union movement in Victoria is. The union movement in Victoria has been working hard on housing for some time because this is not a new issue, but, of course, it's about how do you get movement and how do you get outcomes. It's not a magic wand scenario. 
Thankfully, last week, we weren't able to talk about it much, but the Housing Affordability Future Fund passed, which has unlocked all this opportunity. And we see a week later, you know, this is what really irritates me about the Greens van. They held this up for months, the half. Federally, they held it up for months. You know, they pretended that somehow or another it wasn't going to deliver, it was no good, da-da-da-da-da. It meant plans got pushed back in New South Wales, Victoria, all around the country, Queensland, places where people needed homes, plans got pushed back, announcements got pushed back, orders for materials got pushed back. It meant things were delayed unnecessarily. Today, as we speak, Victoria has launched the biggest ever urban renewable project. It's retiring and redeveloping all of Melbourne's 44 ageing high-rise public housing estates by 2051. It's going to mean that these buildings that were built between the 50s and 70s that currently house about 10,000 people will be redeveloped to modern standards for 30,000 people. That's a tripling of capacity. You know, they're talking about building an additional 80,000 homes a year in Victoria through a variety of mechanisms. There is no one single mechanism. The half itself is not the one single mechanism, but there's a variety of mechanisms. And you can see the maturity that Labor in Victoria brings to these policies when you can see that it's got a policy around regional development. It's got a policy around these inner city developments. It's got a policy around how it streamlines the approval for housing so that NIMBYs can't hold up hundreds of homes for people in places that they need to live. We need our nurses living near our hospitals. We need our cleaners living near our hospitals and our schools. Teachers shouldn't have to commute two hours each way to get to the classroom. The idea that somehow or another we're going to ship everybody out to the suburbs and then expect them to come in to the city, well, it's no wonder people want to work from home, you know. I want to work from home. And all the people who are like, oh, we don't understand why the inner cities are dying. It's like, well, because no one could afford to live there. Yeah. And it's... Dull? It's it's a really good set of policies. You know, approvals within 10 days to build... If you've got a single home block of land, you should get that approval in 10 days. That is a huge... That is so much quicker. Anyone who's tried to build their own home can tell you how much quicker that is. And if you're building a granny flat, we know we've got an aging population. We know there are people who want to bring their families together who might have, they might still have that, you know, half acre block of land or even a quarter acre block of land. And the granny flat just needs to be a bedroom and a bathroom, right? But it's got to go through planning approvals. It's got to be signed up. So many hurdles to jump through. Uh, Sometimes in some places they want you to split the title. I mean, these are... Just extraordinarily expensive delays, which quite frankly, when people are in the twilight of their years, they don't necessarily want to go through all of that, right? They're saying no planning permits will be needed to build a small second home. This is about keeping families together. This is good working class policy, right? This is saying that if you've got some super and you have got yourself and your family to a point where you can afford to do this, you can do this. You don't have to send grandma and grandpa to a nursing home if you can have this little second home in your backyard. And that's not going to be for everyone, right? Of course, that's not going to be for everyone because not everyone's going to be able to afford to do that. But it's now an option for a lot of families 
who, quite frankly, wouldn't have been able to go through all the hoops and still afford to do that little build. Now they'll just have to be able to afford the little build. It's fantastic. Building up train stations, bus interchanges, local infrastructure and communities, so more schools, more healthcare, more playgrounds, unlocking government land to build 9,000 homes, a whole new suburb around a metro tunnel at Arden Station, and, of course, renters' rights. We know a third of Australians are renters, you know, until we bought this house. We only bought this house, what, five or six years ago. Mm. You know, you were well in your 40s by the time we bought this house. Yeah, remind everybody, Ben. <laughs> I'm just saying increasingly. Remind everybody how old I am, Ben. It's harder and harder to buy a house, and we need to think about that. They're going to restrict, restrict rent increases between fixed-term agreements, ban all types of rental bidding, this idea that we pit Australians against one another to who gets a home, that's got to end, new portable rent bond scheme. So, again, the cost of these things. If you're barely making rent, the idea that you've got to raise a bond while you've got another bond locked up in the place you're in, to put down the new bond on the new place, that's beyond a lot of people. I know when I was renting, I would have to beg and borrow from friends to make that happen. You know, no more. Uh, Extend notice periods to vacate or increase rent to 90 days, actually giving people time to find somewhere and introducing mandatory training and tougher penalties for real estate agents. You know, I just keep coming back to that story. There's a story that rings in my head around this of the the kind of nice I imagine imagine the guy as a Mediterranean. I don't know if he was Mediterranean or not. This kind of nice landlord who who got this letter from the tenant saying, unfortunately due to the rent increases, we're gonna to have to move out. You've been a great landlord for the last 20 years. Um, you know, all the very best. <laughs> and the landlord went to the home and said, I don't understand why you've sent me this letter. What rent increases are you talking about? And they said, well, we've got this letter from the real estate agent saying you're putting up the rent by, I can't remember what it was, like $120 a week or something. And this this landlord was furious because he'd specifically rejected the real estate agent's request to put up the rent because that particular, and look, you know, yes, some landlords are terrible people and they're basically slumlords, but not all of them are, right? And in this particular occasion, this particular landlord sacked the real estate agent and took, hey. over, took over the management of the property directly and, and obviously didn't put up the rent. But those kinds of things occur, right? Where people just, they get told by the real estate agent, oh, we have to put it, you should put up the rent. They go, oh, if that's what we're doing, that's what we're doing, right? We know that there is a spectrum between actively evil to actively good. There are people who are passively evil and people who are passively good. And having good regulations and laws encourages people to be passively good. And when they're very good regulations and laws, that can actually encourage people to be actively good. And what I like about this package on housing in Victoria is how much of it is putting people in the passively good category and encouraging them to be actively good. There are some details in this policy, which I won't go into in too much detail, but one of the details that that I read up was that there are a number of apartment buildings where some of the apartments don't sell. They just don't sell and they're vacant. And right now in major cities around Australia, there will be apartment buildings with vacant apartments that the developer has not been able to sell. 
what this policy, a very small part of this policy says, is that if the developer wants to give that to or sell that to uh, the state government of Victoria uh, to make available for social housing, they can create a lead tenant arrangement where the government will facilitate that in such a way so the developer doesn't lose out, um, and, but it gets filled and there's somebody living in that apartment. That is a that is an attempt to create an incentive for people to do an actively good thing that didn't exist before, didn't exist before, because it was just it was just easier for them to go, oh, well, it's just empty. Well, we just, you know, we just don't get any rent for that one. This is the kind of stuff long-term Labor governments can do and the kind of stuff that means when Labor is in power and it's focused on the needs of people, it's actually able to continue to build its position and strengthen its position. Three terms Labor has been in government in Victoria, and if there was an election held this Saturday, not only would it be returned, it would probably pick up seats. (laughs) That is phenomenal. Daniel Andrews, praise be upon his name. That is phenomenal. So we can hope that Queen, that New South Wales gets to that point. Queensland we will start to talk about soon too because obviously they'll have an election uh, towards the start of next year. But these are fundamentally good outcomes in housing. Yes, there are long timelines on some of these pieces of work. 44 towers are not going to come down tomorrow and be replaced the day after. But having a plan, having funding, having systems in place, that's what it takes to actually make a substantial and real difference. So, Van, New South Wales and Victoria, moving forward. It's good to see. It is. It's really exciting. As a person who's from New South Wales and lives in Victoria, I love good news. Now, very quickly, I want to talk about some workers' rights issues because the union movement has been absolutely smashing it over the last um, little while. 1700, you've probably already heard about this. We posted it on social media. I just very quickly want to give a big shout out to the Transport Workers Union uh, and the 1700 uh, Transport Workers Union members who were found to be uh, illegally sacked by Qantas. This has been a three-year process. It's gone to the High Court. Qantas has been found liable for the illegal sacking of these workers during the pandemic. This is what we've been saying on this show for three years, the whole time, Um it's an extraordinary victory, uh, a unanimous decision of the High Court, and it upholds the rights of working people. And the whole union movement was was behind this and supportive of this. And we got to meet um, uh, one of these uh, workers. I got to meet one of these workers at Victorian Trades Hall. He was a big fan of the show. Uh, and it was good to see him front and centre uh, at the uh, High Court uh, press conference and the announcement. So uh, a big shout out to him. Also, a congratulations to their lawyers because I mean, yeah. Qantas is a very, very rich company. Fights tooth and nail to you know to be the worst they can possibly be. Yeah. And Morris Blackburn, Josh Bornstein, who I'm sure you'll remember as the legal hero of the MUA dispute mm-hmm. 20, 25 years ago. He was the lawyer on the Qantas case and he beat him. And I'm just like, hear, hear, Josh Bornstein, you legend. And of course, Morris Blackburn, big supporters of the show in the past and we big supporters of our labour lawyers, as they're called. Uh, they do work for working people. Um, Van, very quickly, I just want to make uh, another quick point around 
why now is a good time for people to join their union. There is... I mean, every day yeah, is a good day to join a union. The Closing the Loopholes Bill was punted from the parliament into a Senate inquiry that will not report until February. Now, what is this bill about? This We've talked about it before. It's about closing the loopholes that allow labour hire to be used by companies like Qantas, like BHP, to undermine the wages and working conditions of their current workforce by using labour hire agreements. Uh, it's about making wage theft, deliberate wage theft, a crime so that somebody goes to jail. Uh, if they do the wrong thing, if they deliberately do the wrong thing. Uh, and it's about making sure that there are minimum standards in the gig economy, that you cannot use a, a digital platform and somehow magically pretend that that exists in a different world to the minimum wages and award systems that we in Australia have decided set the framework for what is the minimum entitlements that working people are are able to be paid and can expect to be paid. Using an app does not change 110 years of case law. That's fundamentally what this bill is saying. It has been uh, opposed by the coalition. Uh, Lambie and Pocock have pushed it off to February. I want to make these very quick points. Every, every political party voter, so a recent poll done by Essential, has found that across all three of those areas, making wage theft a crime, closing labour labor hire loopholes, and minimum entitlements for gig workers, there is a majority of voters for every kind of political party, every kind of political movement in this country who supports doing those things. So making wage theft a crime, 78% of Australians support it versus 7% oppose. 66% support closing labour hire loopholes versus 12% opposing. Minimum entitlements for gig workers is a little bit closer. Only 54% oppose, but only, sorry, only 54% support it, but only 15% oppose. What this window of time will do is it will allow the coalition, BHP, Qantas, big business, their lobby groups to continue to campaign, to continue to pump misinformation, to go back to our first story about what this bill will do and how it will you know, make things worse for working people. Somehow or another, BHP having to pay people better wages will make wage earners worse off. It's, a, it's an interesting logic. It's a, it's a bold tactic, but that's where they're going. That's what they're going to try and convince people of. They know they're coming from behind on this. Uh, and it's even coalition voters, people who are like, actually, I would vote for Peter Dutton. I don't, I don't know how you would make that decision. No, no. But even people who say they would vote for Peter Dutton support, support minimum standards in the gig economy. The majority of those people. Yeah, and look, I'll give you a little story about wage theft. Yeah. A friend of mine worked for an Australian cinema, right, and was wage thefted there. And somebody who was at the cinema was like, well, why don't we, we know we're not getting paid, but we should be paid. Let's unionise. They fought it and they won and they got back paid what they were owed after this period of wage thievery had gone on. She was back paid enough money to buy a car. Yeah. Right? That's how much 
her employer had taken from her pay packet illegally. Now, if someone stole your car, you would expect them to go to jail. Yeah. You know, that's what we do to car thieves. If somebody is stealing enough money from you for you to afford a car, they have effectively stolen a car from you. Yeah. And obviously should be treated the same way. It makes sense. It makes sense. Look, we've gone long today because obviously we didn't do an episode last week. We didn't do a weekend wrap. And we know you missed this. I mean, we missed you. We did. We did. Um, But, Van, there is some good news. It's about cow burps. It is about cow burps. We've actually talked about cow burps before, but there is some progress on the cow burp front. Yes. A Tasmanian-based company that grows seaweed to stop cows and sheep from burping. Oh, sorry, I had forgotten the sheep. I'm obviously sheepist. I I do (laughs) apologise for my inherent, you know, biases. My apology to any sheep present. They're called Sea Forest. They've been shortlisted for a prestigious Global Environment Award, uh, the Earthshot Prize, set up in 2020 by Prince William uh, and- That guy. And Sir David Attenborough. Oh, he's good. We like him. We're pro. Yeah. So Ben and I once couldn't get into a David Attenborough gig and we were like outside on the stairs feeling cold and alone. Remember that? I do. Yeah, because it was at capacity, not because we were like badly dressed. God. Yeah. Shout out to Stephen Miles, who did try to get us into that gig uh, unsuccessfully at the time. Uh, but we appreciate the effort there. Now, Deputy Premier of uh, Queensland. That of is amazing. Dr. That is Dr. Just Stephen Miles. Absolutely amazing. Um, it's, a, it's a funny, funny world. Look, the researchers at the CSIRO and James Cook University have proven that when livestock eat this particular seaweed extract with their feed, it virtually eliminates their methane emissions. Uh, these emissions from the world's combined 2 billion sheep and cattle are the largest source of greenhouse gases in the agricultural sector. Now, Seaforest uh, reckons uh, that they, at the moment, can produce enough to feed 2 million head of cattle. That's obviously some way from the 2 billion around the world. But the prize, if they win this uh, prize, is $1.9 million to help scale up their solution. And, of course, Australia under the leadership of Tanya Plibersek as our Environment Minister, has signed on to the Global Methane Pledge to reduce methane emissions by 30% by the year 2030, less than six and a half years away now, Uh, and this is one of the ways in which we hope to be able to achieve that. So it's great news. It's a good Australian company doing the right thing in the environment, uh, you know, being recognised, shortlisted for this award. They may not win it, but it's worth thinking about. It's an honour just to be nominated. It's an honour just to be nominated. And, uh, you know, I've, I've read three or four articles about this in the last 24 hours. The meat tastes the same. There's no impact on any of that. You know, it actually reduces costs overall. Literally cannot wait for the cookers to turn this into a cultural <laughs> issue. The cows are going to make us listen to rap music. I actually got that one about The Voice the other day, that The Voice is going to make us all listen to rap music. Look, and I'm like, but I like rap music. It's a universal good news story. Speaking of universal good news stories, of course, we now sail past one million downloads. Yay! Uh, hundreds and hundreds of people uh, engage with the week on Wednesday now every week. Uh, it is overwhelming, and I'm sorry if I haven't got back to all of your comments and uh, interactions with us. We're doing our very best. We have been a bit sick. We appreciate your support. This podcast will always be free to listen, always free to download. There are some people who do choose to make a voluntary contribution, whether they make a one-off contribution, a buck a week contribution, $10 a month as our extended reach supporters, or $20 a month as our cadre. All of that money goes into 
getting more listeners for this show, getting these messages into the heads of more people in on their phones, on their stereos, however they listen to their podcasts. And inoculating them against disinformation. Absolutely. So we give a shout-out to anyone who's been to our buymeacoffee.com slash week on Wednesday page and become an Extend the Reach supporter or a Cadre supporter. You get this shout-out from Van because she's very good at it. Here we go. Our Cadre Van. All right. I am very sick. So if I stumble, just... Love me anyway. Shane Horsfall, Andy Stavett, Ken Lee, Jason Paris, Mega Ichisaurus, Matt Trezise, and Coleman at Ross Kenner 888, Bronwyn Cockington, Terry Butler, Jack Powell, Gal Ferguson, Rebecca Fanning for Longman, Matthew Hadley, Colm Kelly, Ali Vance, Mary M, Love Your Work, Yeet Yeti at Anthony Balden, Claire, Jason Dallas, Camille Akivribouris, Gabe Kramer, Stephen Aitken, Trish Corey, Greg Miller, Kathy Birch, Fiona McNeil, McNeil, at Chad Carney, Bronwyn, Punch Drunk Veteran, at Jenny Foster 7, Andrew Pass. Pasco, Cassandra Tui, Ian Hampson, No Twitter for Me, Hannah Honda, Matt Bush, Glenn Robbie, Brash Daniels, Kylie Phillips, Linda Cartwright, at Leanne Shingles, I don't have Twitter, my name is Susan Myers, at Kerry Nash 20, Billy 3 McCabe, Nurse Assignment, at Katagal, Lauren Ash and Banjo, at Naranga Man, John Sharpen, Peter Bath, Louise Watson, Red, White and Blue Lou, um, Shamila Lakal, Ms. Deanne Weir, Joe Lockery, Steph, Karina Barley, at Jane C. Campbell and Leona, Leona Gibbons. Not one of my finest, everybody. I am so sorry. I'm so croaky. And our Extend the Reach supporters, Stuart Munn, Blagoya, Matthew Case, Marky Mark, Adrian Valente, Mizritza, E. Carradale 68, Frank Nahouse, Erica Pizzuti, Joe Lapino, Rachel Fitzpatrick, Kerry Arthur, Pauline Bate, Helen, uh, Kim Delahaye, Murray Bardwell, Janet McCalman, Jeremy Moe, Rosie Elliott Lara, at Robert Not Phil 1, Michael Wales, Sanj Kelly, Darina, Donald Vaughan, Damien Marley, Michelle Norton, Rodney Slab, Cameron, Tri Dragon, Daniel, at Crazy Keza, John DeHaan, Ange Fennell, Anna Uren, Melanie Dinning, Jody A. Penelope Judge, Jane Holloway, Spirit of Anger and Hope, S. Wood, at Didham, Sharon Kelly, Beckham Lola, Richard Graver, Someone, Vita W., Nandita Hannum, Maura Louise Hawker, Megan Weckett, Graham Oxley, Tracy Lucas, Sandy Honan, at Gal Vest, Greg Martin, Trainer, Amy Fawcett, not on Twitter, Sarah, Eliane, and Andrew, Ivis Billet, Andrew Bryan, Peter O.C., Sam Hadid, Kip Patterson, Buncombe Basher, Katie Ward, at The Real Neville Longbody, Sandy, Sandy Bomegard, at Not Sandy B, and Renee McGee. That was the worst I've ever done, and I do apologise, but I am dying inside. Look, you've done extremely well to get through the whole podcast. Please remember to like, uh, to subscribe. Uh, You can subscribe for free. Uh, You can check out that supporter page. Remember to join your union. Share this episode with as many people as you can, just if only for the information about disinformation and what we can do as a community to stand up against it and stand for our democratic rights to live in an informed uh, and not misled society. Until the weekend wrap, where I intend to be fully fighting fit once again. Love you, Vanny. I love you too. Thanks for looking after me. Bye. Bye.